You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 9th of October. And on the programme today, as pet rescuers continue to rehabilitate nearly 100 cats found in the desert near Al-Fala, we spoke to one of the first people on the scene to determine what happened. Plus, what are the laws protecting animals in the UAE? Lawyer Amar Albana had answers for us. Meanwhile, as Sheikh Mohammed reminisced on social media about how other Gulf leaders laughed at him when he suggested the UAE could be a tourist hotspot, we were joined by a very special guest, Gerald Lawless, the former CEO of Jumeirah Group, for a trip down memory lane and a look at the future of regional and global tourism. Plus, we looked into the direct impact of tourism on retail and restaurants in the UAE with business leaders from both. And as a painting valued at $15,000 two years ago is now expected to fetch up to $18 million at auction, art historian Rose Bolston explained why the adoration of the kings was first attributed to a student of Rembrandt rather than the artist himself. Meanwhile, bedbugs have taken over Paris, but could we soon see an outbreak here in the UAE? We found out with Pallavi Singtani, who is Head of User Experience and Marketing for the Healthy Home UAE. She also had hints on how you can keep your own home bedbug-free. Plus, Chris McCarty, ARN's Head of Sport, joined us with all the latest sporting stories from the weekend. Morning to you. And it's actually rather a beautiful morning out there. It's very clear. I hope that means that hopefully that weekend humidity that we saw will finally start to drop and we'll get some decent weather. Do you remember, it's always just every single year, there's a moment when a cool breeze comes over the sea. And, and I can literally, I can, I can almost pinpoint the day it happens each year when instead of a hot, humid wind, you get that lovely, cool breeze and you're like, finally winter is here. And I know people have called it, but I don't think it's here yet. I think it comes at the end of October normally. Um, But yeah, lovely clear day out there today. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's not too hot. Um, George Tolley here. I'll be keeping you company all the way through until one o'clock. We've got a rather serious topic that we're going to look at first on the show today. Um, You might have noticed I was off last week and I followed this story with a great deal of interest. I, I wasn't able to watch all the videos because I sort of find that that type of thing quite distressing. So I slightly protect myself from it, myself from it. Um, But it is that uh, story of the cats that were abandoned in the desert in Al-Fala in uh, Abu Dhabi. Now, when I first heard this story, I actually didn't know where Al-Fala was. And I looked it up on Google Maps. And it's slightly deceptive when people say that the cats were abandoned in the desert because I mean, it was the desert, but it's right next door to a housing area. So it's not like they were driven out miles into the desert uh, and then abandoned. You know, it is right next to a residential area. Pet rescuers in the UAE have now actually revised the number of cats they found. Um, Originally, 150 was the number cited. It's now around 97 that have been found. These are cats, the cats that have been found. Uh, Sadly, four of them have died, but 93 are still alive. But that is still a huge number. Um, And, you know, they were clearly very distressing scenes. 
um, from the videos that are circulating on social media. The local authorities have said that they are investigating the incident. It's Abu Dhabi's Department of Municipalities and Transport who are involved, obviously Dubai Police and the UAE Police as well. They're encouraging the public to report any details, any information they might have. They're taking measures to find who is responsible for it. And understandably, it really did... I mean, I think it touched nearly everyone I know. You know, it's one of those topics that people have mentioned, you know, have you, and, and obviously the story's gone international as well. So I wanted to find out a little bit more about it. And earlier I spoke to one of the first rescuers who were on the scene. Uh, he's a chap called David Appleby. He's one of the founders of a website called microchip.ae. And the aim of that site is to connect lost pets with owners. And he basically talked me through how the whole rescue process started. Travelling back from work on Thursday the 28th of September, my phone started to ping unusually and because me and my wife do some sort of rescue work and obviously through microchip.ee trying to identify pets, I started receiving WhatsApps, phone calls saying that there was a big event in Alfala in the desert with a mass unusual gathering of what looked like domesticated cats in the desert. So I got home, I got changed and I said, look, we need to go there. So we got to the area in the desert and immediately me and my wife picked up five what looked like domesticated cats. They literally fell into our arms. So we had a car full. So we then started messaging other known rescuers who we work with. Then by Thursday evening, the whole rescue community from Abu Dhabi, massive support from Dubai. And we started organizing a controlled rescue effort in order to rescue as many of these cats as possible. And how did you go about that? Were you literally just going out into the sort of desert area next to the Al-Fala housing estate and literally calling for cats? Because the desert area is quite a wide sort of area, we had to rely on individuals turning up with 4 by 4s to widen the search. So to Thursday, Friday, we sort of cleared the immediate area where we were walking because you've got to understand that these animals, the cats, are very shy and, and the time of day you have to conduct the rescue will either be dawn or dusk, purely for heat. So we had teams on the ground literally early morning and late evening and working throughout the night as well. You know, some of them will work until 4 a.m. in the morning and they had been there probably 18 hours at a time. And how many cats have been found so far in this area? We can confirm we have successfully rescued 97 cats. Unfortunately, four of these cats have since passed due to various ailments. And um, yeah, it's been a really, really great effort by everybody. And what condition were these cats in? How long, for example, do you think they'd been in this desert area? Well, the ones that survived, the 97, if you like, initially, they looked predominantly in good condition of course, naturally dehydrated, not necessarily starving. We have got some sick animals related to certain diseases, but the majority of the surviving sort of 93 are quite in, in good condition. There's a lot of cats remaining in the vets at the moment under observation. Cold, flus, we have a couple of cats with parvo, and I've even got one cat currently who will stay in the vets with a severe case of ringworm. So considering the fact that the cat's don't seem to be in a bad condition, is it fair to presume that they hadn't been there for very long? Because it must have been, I mean, it's so hot out in the desert in the middle of the day now, and, and I don't imagine there's a great deal of shelter for them. My personal assessment is they were probably two to three days. 
Now, we have to take into consideration, you know, most of these are domestic breeds who will more than likely just sit there and wait for their owners to return. And then we have the intelligence cats that will move, look for food, look for shelter, look for shade. So unfortunately, yes, there isn't much shade there. The cats that did find some shade was predominantly under the tree and a do communications mast. They'd made their way into the compound and hid under the sort of porter cabins in that particular compound. And how did you manage to tempt them out? Do you use food? Were they were they friendly? Did they act like they'd only recently left home, so to speak? This is what is really upsetting. Yes, the majority of cats that were rescued, we just literally was picking them up, you know, and these are little lovely domesticated animals. Yes, 100%. They definitely have been humanized. They are domesticated animals. Most of them. We do have some Arabian mouse, and these are more intelligent animals that know how to survive. I mean, there's a massive question mark as to where and how and who put these cats in this desert area. I know that the police and the authorities are looking into this. There's been various press announcements along those lines. You were there first on the ground or one of the first on the ground. You rescued some of the first cats. And obviously, you've worked in the animal rescue community here for some time. Do you have any theories as to who could have done this? Personally, I have my theories and and I can't make assumptions because I am and a group of volunteers are working closely with both the municipality and the police in order to assist in their investigation. Publicly, I really can't say who may or may not have done this. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's an ongoing investigation. So I, so I won't push you on that because it's important to let the authorities do their work and you're helping with that investigation. I understand that some of the cats have been recognised by their owners. Is that accurate? Yes, we have traced certain cats to individuals in both Abu Dhabi and Dubai. This has either been through identifying their microchip numbers or in a case I had last night, a lady phoned me desperately saying she recognised one of the cats. At this stage, the cat hadn't been caught because it was a male. So we immediately sent our super trapping team and we caught the cat and we had the cat and the lady is very, very happy. And we confirmed that it is her cat through video and photographic images. So she is a very happy person this morning. She's in Dubai. Is that correct? That's correct. She was living in Abu Dhabi, um, but she now lives in Dubai. So. And do we know how long ago she lost her cat? Yes, it was early September, the 3rd of September, when, when her cat. Oh, my goodness. Well, she must be absolutely thrilled. I mean, it is wonderful that there are these positive stories uh, coming out of this really distressing tale. Do you think that we are a country of animal lovers in the UAE? You know, I've thought about this many, many occasions and obviously have various conversations with people about this. The UAE, since I first arrived 11 years ago, you see a massive change over that 11 years. Of course, it's a nation of animal lovers because you see even multinational people who probably wouldn't have had pets 11 years ago now have pets. But unfortunately, we can't account for other people's actions, right? David Appleby there, one of the founders of Microchipped AE, uh, which connects lost pets with owners. And obviously, if you want to find out a little bit more about those Al Fala cats, uh, you can go to roughpaws.com. Uh, slightly unusual spelling of that, R-U-F-F-P-A-W-Z.com. There's also an Instagram site, Al Fala Cats Adoption, if you want to check that out.
Georgia Tolly here, keeping you company all the way through until one o'clock. This is the agenda. And we are talking about that big pet rescue that took place in the desert in Al-Fala. Uh, it's uh, near actually that residential area in Abu Dhabi. You might have seen the headline saying that 150 cats were rescued. In fact, now that the sort of numbers have shaken down a bit, it turns out that about 97 animals were found eventually um, overall. Uh, 93 of them are still alive. Uh, but of course, they were in a very, very difficult situation there. They were out in this desert area next to the residential Al-Fala area without food or without water. Water. The local authorities say that they are investigating the incident. But what are the animal protection laws in the UAE? You know, for example, when the authorities find out who is responsible for this, are there fines? Are, are there, you know, can you be imprisoned for hurting pets, for hurting animals? Let's find out. I'm joined on the line now by Amar Albana. He's the founder of Incept Legal and of Council, and also uh, he's with Kadir and Partners. Amar, great to have you join me on the line. How are you? Georgia, I'm doing great. Thanks a lot. And it's great to have you again. I think we spoke earlier a lot this year. So I'm we glad did. To be with you you are a multi-talented lawyer. I have you saved in my phone as transport lawyer. But now we're now we're coming to you on the subject of animal rights. So I, I'm very... I like to, I like you say yeah, I like you see it this way. <laughs> it's one of those odd things you as a journalist you save lots of numbers in your phone uh, for all types of people and then I save keywords as well so I can always so I can search for you. Anyway, strange insight into my into my phone there. But Amal, let's talk to you uh, specifically about how animals are protected in the United Arab Emirates are they are there laws to prevent cruelty to prevent harm yes of course of course they are so we have um, the UAE federal law number 16 of 2007 concerning animal welfare Uh, this law addresses various aspects of animal rights including things like proper care of animals housing providing shelter decent transportation Additionally, there are some regulations that protect um, the endangered species to ensure their conservation and preventing illegal trade. So, yeah, I would say there are a fair amount of protection to animals in the UAE. Is there a difference between, for example, wild and domestic animals? Because obviously we, we, we live with the domestic animals much more, so maybe they need more protections? Yeah, of course. Actually, this is a very good question. In fact, there, there are... The, the, there are some sort of differences in terms of the legal status and the regulation that applies to both domestic animals and uh, wild animals. So in a nutshell, just to give you a flavor, the domestic animals are referred to species that uh, have been selected and bred and kept by human for various purposes, such as companionship, work and agriculture. Um, the common example of these uh, would include dogs, cats, horses, um, uh, cows, sheep, and goats. So, so these are these are the the the, the, the kind of domestic animals we we, we would be looking at. Um, on the other hand, wild animals are species that are not domestic um, uh, domestically living with a, a, a human being, and it's not their natural habitat um, uh, to be uh, with humans. And that would include things like birds, mammals, reptiles, and and, and the likes, marine life as well. And, and, and there are some differences in terms of the regulation that apply to both um, domestic and um, uh, um, uh, exotic animals, if you like. 
I'm interested to know whether the law has changed recently because um, we've been speaking to some of the animal rescuers, some of the sort of activists, I suppose, for want of another word. And they feel that in the last 11 years, attitudes towards animals have changed in the UAE. I just wondered whether that came in parallel with a, with a change in the law. Not, not, not recently. Not recently, I have to say. Just, uh, the law that governs uh, these type of um, uh, issues uh, since the 90s, 80s, and, 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 and uh, if we have time, I'll talk to you about one of the cases that actually was, has been prosecuted by the Dubai Public Prosecution Office. But 2007, 2016 are the, the, the recent changes we've seen in law in relation to these type of uh, protection to animals. It gives you a sense there that these, you know, these laws have been placed in place for some time then. I mean, what happens if people are found to have treated animals inhumanely? Yeah, I mean, uh, we're talking about uh, criminal prosecutions. So the Dubai Public Prosecution Office or any federal prosecution office will have the right to prosecute those who uh, mistreat uh, animals and uh, fines can reach, I mean, the, 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 the criminal aspect and the punishment could reach to imprisonment up to one year and a fine up to 100,000 dirhams. So um, I, I understand that maybe in other jurisdictions would be more hefty penalty, uh, penalties, but uh, those are the ones that have been provided in the UAE. Do you, I mean, it's one thing to have the law. It's another thing, you know, whether or not it's actually implemented, whether or not people are actually prosecuted. Do you know of cases where people have been fined or even imprisoned for animal cruelty? Yes, and I'm glad you asked this question. It's, uh, there's actually, there has been a case um, in, in 2010. Um, the, uh, it started with the Rashidia police station where the charges was, was, was brought up and uh, it ended up with the Dubai public prosecution getting convinced with the criminality of it. And what happened in that case, three individuals actually has uh, hunted a rabbit and um, that was uh, illegal. And the prosecution decided to prosecute them before the criminal court. Um, unfortunately or fortunately, I'm not, I wasn't actually fully aware or acting on the case. So I wasn't uh, I didn't have full access to, to what actually happened in terms of evidence. But ultimately, the Dubai Criminal Court has found the individuals uh, not guilty due to lack of evidence. So, so and, and obviously, the, 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 there's a trust we have in the legal system in the UAE, and I'm quite confident that that was the case. But what I would take, my takeaway from this case would be, despite um, that those individuals have been found not guilty, things can be taken very seriously, and dealing with a prosecution uh, could be very... Uh, uh, serious thing for individuals to be dealing with. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I don't want to say, you know, that was the reaction for, for just a rabbit, but, but, you know, it gives you a sense there of how seriously things are being taken, you know, for even a very small mammal, for example. Really interesting to speak to you, Amar. Thank you very much for joining me on the line. I will be adding uh, a, a sort of ad, more laws, <laughs> more, more themes to your name when it's saved in my contacts. Uh, fantastic. Yeah, why not? Why not? Do we have a, a quick minute? Actually, one thing before I go, apart from the legality and migration out of it, you know, the on the on the Islamic context as well, like the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, just has provided us with examples where uh, individuals have mistreated animals and how unlawful that is from an Islamic point of view, and how actually it is praised for individuals to take care of animals. And as you know, most of the UAE laws are derived from the Islamic uh, context. So this is also another layer, uh, more a layer for individuals to be to be considering, I would say.
That is a very important layer to be considered. Thank you so much, Amar. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us uh, today on the agenda. That was Amar Albana. He's the founder of Intercept Legal and of Council and also Kadir and Partners. Fantastic to have you join us on the line to, to really put this uh, into context. Uh, and it's clear that if people are indeed found to be guilty of inhumane treatment of animals, they can indeed be prosecuted, fined, and imprisoned here in the UAE. Welcome back to the show. Really good to have you with us. Now, did you go on Twitter over the weekend? I'm afraid I haven't started calling it X. It's almost a sort of Luddite refusal. Um, Also, if you do say X, you then have to go formerly known as Twitter. Anyway, in a message on social media, if you were on either Twitter and X, you'll have noticed His Highness Sheikh Mohammed highlighting a recent World Tourism Organization report. Now, this report ranks the UAE fourth in the world for international spending. Now, we're used to surveys like that. We're used to hearing great things about tourism in the UAE. But it actually led His Highness to reminisce about how other Gulf leaders laughed at him when he suggested the UAE could be a tourist hotspot. Well, it's fair to say the UAE has proven them wrong. Even the latest figures that literally came out on Saturday show that hotels in the UAE recorded a 24% annual increase in revenues in the first seven months of this year. We haven't even reached the end of the year yet. uh, And we're only just coming into winter, let's be honest. Uh, They made 26 billion dirhams so far this year. So we wanted to get into this topic. We wanted to reminisce a bit about when tourism started all those years ago. But we also wanted to look into the future because of of course, um, that is where the exciting sort of stages lie. That's where the money is. Uh, so we have invited a very special guest into the studio. I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Gerald Lawless, who is the founding CEO of the Jamira Group. He is going to take us uh, down a trip of memory lane. Worth mentioning that, of course, uh, Gerald was also a former chairman of the World Travel and Tourism Council, which means that he is an expert not just on tourism and how it's developed here in the UAE, but also you know has a really global perspective. Gerald, thank you for joining me in the studio. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Georgia. Great to be here. Thank you very much. It's very good to have you with us. And, I, and I've and i been told by the Business Breakfast team that I've got to promise to make you tell us the camel story. <laughs> so I'm going to make everyone wait for that for a few minutes. Um, but, 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 but Richard Dean said Malcolm Taylor's favourite story from you was the camel mm. story. So we're going to come to that in a few minutes. Tell me, when did you first arrive in the UAE? And, and what was the tourism you know, landscape mm. then? Well, I first arrived in the uh, in Dubai with my wife Nasa on the 26th of August 1978. <laughs> to be my goodness me! And I know everybody said that's before I was born. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, before I, I was born. Yes, making <laughs> well you feel young. <laughs> and uh, I came. I was working for the British Hotel Group uh, Forte Hotels. And we had our first management contract to open a hotel at the uh, near the airport, which is now known as the Meridian at the airport. And we opened it as uh, Fondok Dubai Al Dawli, which was Dubai International Hotel. So that finally opened in uh, September of '79. So we've been there for a year before it opened. And as for tourism, we didn't know anything about tourism <laughs> at the time. And certainly, uh, the, uh, the this this city, this country was not a destination for, for, for tourists, but it was still a great place in which to live. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, is that the hotel that you rode a camel into the lobby? It is. <laughs> so talk me through that story. <laughs> I, I, all your audience now are switching off. Oh, not, not. with these silly stories again. Anyway, 
what happened was was that uh, we were organising the uh, opening party and the opening party was spread over the total ground floor of the hotel. It's a, actually, the hotel is really a lovely hotel and has a fantastic lobby area and it all spreads over a large, a large amount of space. So we were going to have international buffets. I had the exalted position assistant food and beverage manager, which is about as low as you could go. But anyway, it was great. And uh, we said, well, we'll have to have an Arabic station as well as all the other international stations. And I said, yeah, I think I can help there because we need to get something really authentic. I had a local friend and I said, do you know where we might be able to get a camel? He said, yeah, yeah, I have a friend. So he took me in his car out towards Cabernet, you know, just beyond the airport. At that stage, there was nothing there apart from the airport. And camels. Uh, so we went out. We drove over to Sand Dunes and we came to this little house. And there was uh, a local couple city, sitting outside <laughs> and uh, he spoke to the Arabic and there was sort of a ramshackle garage. And I said, I wonder what's happening now. And they opened the garage and there's a gleaming white Range Rover inside the garage. So we hopped into this. We went over and we came to a camel pen. And there the camel pen, there was this camel in the pen. Now it had two baby camels as well. And we, I thought that'd be perfect. Would you be able to bring them on Saturday uh, afternoon down to this new hotel that's, uh, that's just opened? And they said, yep, no problem. I said, how will you do? Do you need to get a truck or something? He said, no, I'll ride the camel. So I said, well, all right. <laughs> so, wow. Anyway, the poor man, he rode the camel down. Can you imagine the airport road as it is today? He rode the camel and he stopped it outside the uh, ballroom entrance. And I had my tux on and everything. And I said, uh, would you mind if I rode the camel in? He said, you're putting it inside? I said, yeah, behind the Arabic buffet. <laughs> <laughs> so he said no and he got the camel to sit down I got up with the camel and he put in I have a photograph actually still just was, as has this camel been ridden before was it a well yes he'd ridden it down the, down yeah, the road had you ridden a camel before never no I never sat in a camel <laughs> I'd hardly seen a camel anyway so the uh, the, the, the camel ro- walked me in so I was sitting on top of the camel he led the camel and we put the camel sitting down behind the buffet now, I don't think the health and safety people today might quite have allowed that. I was going to say, it's not something you see at the Jamira Beach Hotel nowadays. I think sadly, no, in many so ways. This was uh, at the Dubai International at the time. But anyway, so it was a great attraction. And yeah, uh, hey, it's a good old story, you know, 50 years later almost. It is a brilliant story. And I'm very interested to know how the tourism sector developed. Because, of course, you know, Sheikh Mohammed saying that he was laughed at by the other GCC leaders. My goodness me, yeah. he turned that around. And you were very much part of that story. Yeah, very fortunate. I, I think very much as, you know, people often sort of say this whole thing about vision. But, you know, the vision His Highness had for the development in all facets of industry, but particularly with regards to the potential of tourism, were truly amazing. I mean, uh, I remember going to the opening of the Chicago Beach Hotel in 1981. And around the same time, I believe the Jabal Ali Hotel had opened. So there were two hotels, not really uh, focused on tourism, but at the same time, they were right on the beach and uh, they were beginning to attract people. But what I feel, and okay, I left in 1982 and I came back in charge in 1990, back to live in 1991, uh, again with Forte. But I, I, I really felt that the, the launch of Emirates Airlines by His Highness in 1985. Wow, that was such a move. And, you know, what has been achieved 
by uh, Emirates Airlines. Because to me, the aviation industry, the airlines, they, they are the lifeblood of the tourism industry, especially in a place like Dubai. If we didn't have a good air service, we just couldn't have tourists. Mm. So you have to have the ability to transport all the visitors into Dubai. And that, to me, is one of the, the, the key uh, defining factors of the success of travel and tourism uh, to Dubai. Well, of course, I hadn't quite realised that, that the aviation sector comes first. And then I suppose the hotels came second. And so when did the Jumeirah Beach Hotel open? Because that was the first yes. of the Jumeirah sort of, uh, I mean, now conglomerate. I mean, how many mm-hmm. you've got literally hotels all around the world now, Jumeirah Group? Yes. Well, we did understand that, of course, when the guests do fly here, they need some place to sleep as well. They will. <laughs> so, they will. Okay. Somewhere nice, yeah, hopefully. Honestly, we don't need hotels. But actually, the Jumeirah Beach Hotel opened in late November, early December of 1997. I actually joined uh, in June 97 because Forte in, 19, uh, in 1994 bought Meridian Hotels Worldwide. And uh, that gave us a lot of extra hotels in my region. I looked after this region, uh, the the Middle East and North Africa at the time for Forte. So my old hotel, the uh, Meridian at the airport or the Dubai International, uh, was one of uh, those hotels. So they 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 were already you know were there. But we opened in uh, six months, almost after I started, because Forte had been taken over themselves in a hostile bid in 1996. So I was very fortunate. I've been invited to come and have a look at this new hotel that's being built. And do you think you might be interested? Oh, my goodness. It was just uh, an absolute done deal. The first minute I saw it, you know, I thought, oh, wow, this is just absolutely fabulous. And this is the future of what's happening. I mean, but, you know, at that stage, uh, the vision that we talked about of His Highness had already taken place. The Burj Al Arab was under construction. Jumeirah Beach Hotel, being the first one to open, was almost ready to open. The Emirates Towers uh, was already under construction. So, you oh know, wow! So yeah, you, yeah. so so His Highness got all of those three were b- being built at the same time. You know, it wasn't one by one. It was well, like no, let's, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, if we're going to have a hotel industry. industry. If we're going to have a tourism industry. Yes. It's going to be three massive, right. impressive hotels. Once. Indeed. And already you had the two hotels I talked about. And plus you had like on the creek side, which I still think is one of the gems of, uh, of Dubai. I love that area. Uh, we had the uh, Intercontinental, which is now the Radisson. And then we had the Sheraton hotels that were there. And in fact, actually, we, we stayed in a hotel in the souk when we came first in 1978 called the Astoria Hotel, which I think is still there, as, as well as the Ambassador. But, you know, all that area is just still a fabulous area that I'm really so pleased that it has been so well preserved uh, because this, this to me, I used to always tell visitors, please don't leave Dubai without having seen the Creekside area. Take an Abra, walk through the Spy Souk, walk up to the Gold Souk, you know, and see all of that. It's so fabulous. Do you know, I still haven't done that one dirham Abra across the creek yet. Unbelievable. I've been here nine years. I still oh, haven't done it. you're too late now. It's five dirhams. Oh, no. How am I going to afford it? It's horrendous. There, there you go. If anyone says Dubai hasn't seen inflation, there it is. Um, right, Gerald, we're going to keep you over the break because I've got so many questions I'd like to ask you. We've, we've sort of done the reminiscing down memory lane. Yeah, yeah, sure. Now we're going to proceed into the future because I really want to get your insights on where you see tourism, yes. the tourism sector heading, not just here in the UAE, but, but globally as well. So all of that to come in the next few minutes. 
You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the programme. Really good to have you with us. We are discussing uh, tourism here in the UAE. That's off the back of a message uh, that His Highness Sheikh Mohammed put on Twitter or X over the weekend. He highlighted a recent World Tourism Organization report which ranks the UAE fourth in the world for international spending. And that led His Highness to reminisce about how Back in the 80s, uh, or early 80s at least, uh, other Gulf leaders laughed at him when he suggested the UAE could be a tourist hotspot. Well, I think it's fair to say we can all agree uh, that that uh, laughter was was incorrect and and the UAE has certainly proved its status as a tourism destination. Uh, Joining me in the studio, I've kept kept him with us, is our special guest, Gerald Lawless, who was very much involved in the development of tourism here in the UAE as the founding CEO of the Jumeirah Group. Uh, of course, one of the first Jumeirah hotels was uh, the Jumeirah Beach Hotel. Of course, um, many other hotels part of that group now, both uh, locally, regionally and internationally. Great to have you with us, Gerald. We are taking a bit of a trip down memory lane, remembering, you know, back when tourism wasn't necessarily a thing here Let's in the, in the UAE. Let's get the fast lane, Yeah, no, this is the fun. <laughs> We're also going to look at the future of global tourism with you as well, because, of course, uh, you are also formerly chairman of the World Travel and Tourism Council uh, for, for that two years year tenure that, that the chairman always takes. Okay, let me first ask you about back when there was nothing here. <laughs> you know, like back when the World Trade Center was the tallest building in, in the city. But And that played a huge part in the development of the tourism yeah. sector, didn't it? Well, of course. And it's like always people say, why are they building this? But, you know, somebody knew why <laughs> they were building this. And Someone I, with vision. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I, I think this is what has defined Dubai over over the decades and you know how it has evolved imagine having 804 hotels today which I think is a fantastic achievement because we as hoteliers as we would open one hotel and if a competitor down the road was opening we said oh we don't need another hotel if we had our way there'd probably be about 10 hotels in Dubai today just with very but, expensive rooms <laughs> <laughs> very expensive rooms but but his highness always said no competition is good and this is something that has really been one of the defining principles I believe of Dubai is that it's not afraid of competition. It creates its own competition internally and it doesn't mind. It looks upon com- competition elsewhere in the region as a compliment to Dubai. Hey, guys, you got it right and we're going to do something similar. So I think that that does prevail quite a lot. So there's two things I really want to ask you about uh, on that t- subject of competition. One is, of course, Saudi Arabia and, and Qatar and the developing tourism sectors there. The second is, of course, that brand new palm or well old palm that they're now going to start building yeah. again. I mean, just think of the hotels they'll be able to build there and, and the competition that that yes. will bring in. Let's just have a quick listen to um, the UAE's Minister of Economy. He's Abdullah bin Tuk, And speaking at last month's Future Hospitality Summit, he said that plans to introduce a single GCC visa were under discussion with the aim of boosting internal and regional tourism. Have a listen to this. 60% of our tourists are from international tourist. 30 to 40 percent of tourism was from the UAE or from inner cities tourism. And when we looked globally, we saw that Europe, for instance, has a 50-50 or 60-40 towards more of inner tourism than actual international tourism. And this is what we started to think about to change. How can we really activate local tourism in a way that actually becomes a big part of the, uh, the industry? So how can we activate local tourism, regional tourism? 
Uh, I think, you know, what His Excellency has said is absolutely spot on. I mean, Schengen to me was one of the, the great moves. I'm really proud to see that happening in Europe and so, so happy about it. We've got to believe you've got to make it easy to buy is the old sales maxim. You, you must make it easy for the customer to buy, easy to travel here. And, you know, the, the Dubai Tourism Authority has seen this right from the beginning. Do visa-free entry. Look what happened when we did visa-free entry for China, you know, before COVID. Wow, the amount of Chinese who came. It was 250% increase in, in one year alone in Chinese people coming into uh, to the United Arab Emirates and particularly into Dubai. And this has always been the, the hallmark of uh, how Dubai has gone forward, is just making it easy to buy. I, I'm a great believer, actually, in the GCC project. And I really like to see that there's talk... Uh, about this now, about having a Schengen-type visa. Plus, remember, our population now is over 10 million. So this is a huge market for staycations, for everything within the United Arab Emirates itself. Do you think that we should worry about competition from Saudi? They're building some very lovely resorts. I'm sure his Highness Sheikh Mohammed is saying, bring it on. (laughs) (laughs) I I really think that it's, again, like I just said, it's a compliment to what Dubai has achieved over the years and what the UAE has achieved over the years in relation to travel and tourism. I mean, look at places like Ras al-Khaimah, what's happening there. You know, it's just it's really a great thing to see. How about this new palm or the or the oh, the old palm that's that's now being reinvigorated? You know, there'll be some gorgeous hotels, I imagine, being built there. You know, again, we often say this: is there space for more hotels in this market? And the answer has to be yes. I mean, if you look at what happened post COVID, who would have dreamt that the resurgence? would have been like it was in terms of international travel. You know, the airlines themselves just can't believe it. And, it, it. and neither can the hotels. So, yes, there is room to do it. And I think it's something you want to talk about later, about the sustainability of future travel. Yeah, let's get into that now, actually. I've only got two minutes left with you. I don't know how it's passed so quickly. <laughs> but I mean, that, you know, obviously we have COP28 hosted this year. Yes. In, it is the year of sustainability here yes. in the UAE. How do we marry the fact that if you want to go anywhere, you have to jump on a plane and they release horrible emissions into the environment? Okay. First of all, the aviation industry is less than 3% of total carbon emissions. Now, that doesn't say you, can't, you don't have to do something about it. Of course you have. It's all good housekeeping, whether or not you believe in climate change and I do and you know really we've we, we got to get our act together as far as that's concerned and I, I fully appreciate that but I do believe as well that the value of travel and tourism for example to developing communities in poorer countries in developing countries is phenomenal already we're at 10% of global GDP in, ter- in terms of direct and indirect uh, value of uh, travel and tourism but you think of a place like in Africa where you have a game park, you have a village outside in a game park, the people in the village get employment. Ultimately, they'll be able to send their, they'll be able to afford schools for their children, their children will go to school, they'll have prosperity in their local communities. And travel and tourism is a great developer of, of that prosperity. Then Europe won't have to worry so much about migration and immigration and everything. It'll probably be the other way around with climate change. We'd all be trying to go to Africa. But you know, you have this situation very, very strongly where travel and tourism, we used to use the, the term is a force for good. And I'm saying that that I really believe in it. Now, 
are there areas where we have to understand what are our challenges? We have the World Travel and Tourism Council annual summit in Rwanda at the beginning of uh, November, which I will be attending as I'm still an ambassador uh, within the WTTC. And, you know, really, it's, it's, it's fantastic to see this because we, we'll be looking at what, what are our challenges. And I have always been saying to the WTTC, bring our challengers to these summits. Talk to them, get them to understand what tourism is about in terms of the positive effects, but also let us try to understand better what we can do better to make the whole uh, experience and the whole travel product a lot more environmentally friendly. And we can, we can, and we must continue to do that with single-use plastic, like all the big hotel groups are doing so much to get rid of single-use plastic. There are so many different ways to do it. I know you're short of time. But well, you're, you know, you're my second guest who's been on today, who's been very good at looking at the clock on my behalf. So thank you very much indeed. My producers will really appreciate that because I have a tendency to overrun quite a bit, um, uh, especially when I have such interesting guests. Uh, Gerald, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you join us in the studio. You're, you're something like your sort of tourism, well, I won't use the word royalty, but you know what I mean. You're, you're a big deal in tourism in this country. Uh, and, I, and it's really great that you well, were happy to come and talk to us. But I do take them anyway. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Georgia. A great pleasure to have you. And that was Thank Gerald you. Lawless, founding CEO of Jumeirah Group, which of course is Dubai Holdings, global luxury hotel company, also former chairman of the World Travel and Tourism Council. As you just heard, still an ambassador. It's been a great pleasure to have you in the studio. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. We're going to keep our attention on the subject of tourism in the UAE uh, for the next few minutes. Uh, Notable, of course, uh, for three headlines that came up over the last 24 hours. First up, uh, of course, His Highness Sheikh Mohammed highlighting a recent World Tourism Organization report, which ranked the UAE fourth in the world for international spending. We've also had the latest figures that show that hotels in the UAE recorded a 24% annual increase in revenues in the first seven months of this year. That's just the first seven months. So you can imagine how high it's going to go. Uh, They've made 26 billion dirhams so far this year. But we've also heard recently from the UAE's Minister of Economy, Abdullah bin Tuk. Now, he's been speaking at the Future Hospitality Summit in Abu Dhabi. And uh, speaking at that summit, he suggested that 15% of the country's GDP comes from tourism at the moment. And his ambition is to increase that number. To build up a tourism strategy that focuses on attracting 450 billion dirhams worth of investments, to raise the GDP of tourism to about 17% of GDP, to focus on sustainable tourism, to really build a brand identity for the UAE's tourism as well, part of our strategy. Because we don't look at the current investment that comes in from hotels or building infrastructure. What really happens, the F&B industry really picks up. The extreme sports, for instance, picks up. Culture tourism comes up and the UAE has built an infrastructure to really accommodate all these types of tourism. Now, I listened very closely to that clip and I listened to the fact that that, that His Excellency said that when tourism goes up, F&B goes up, sustainable tourism goes up. You know, it has an impact on various other uh, industries in you know various other sectors in the economy. And I thought, right, let's get into that on the agenda. And I'm delighted to say that joining me now on the line to talk about the impact that tourism has on F&B is Naeem Madad, who's the chief executive and founder 
founder of Gates Hospitality. Uh, that is the company behind all sorts of brands here in the UAE, many of which you'll know very well, not least uh, Reform Bar and Grill. But of course, Gates Hospitality also runs that gorgeous resort, uh, The Six Senses in Oman. I still haven't got to go. Uh, but Gate, Nate, Naeem joins me on the line now. How are you? Good to see you, hear yeah. from you. All is well. Thank you. This is good news. Okay, I'm going to ask you to go full numbers, which is not normally what I do on the agenda. It's normally a business breakfast thing. But, you know, when you hear that hotel revenues have gone up by 24%, does that mean that your profits at the restaurants have gone up 24%? Is there a direct correlation or is it a little bit more sort of intricate than that? There is a correlation, but I wouldn't call it direct. It's absolutely a benefit. There is an upswing for, for the numbers because obviously top line, if, if it's managed well, if it's driven well, it delivers bottom line uh, as long as the flow through is healthy and, and correct. But I, I don't want to talk about numbers. I want, I'm excited to talk about the exciting positioning of the UAE being on number four on a global scale. And I, I do, I've been around since 1998, Georgia, and I have seen, I've witnessed first firsthand the dynamic change that we have gone through, the amount of support, the amount of structure, the amount of planning that the government's put into um, this to become what it is today. We have gone through infrastructure. We have through, uh, gone through development, positioning. Brand Dubai today is extremely powerful, and I'm very delighted to be part of this industry, very delighted to be part of what we're calling a, a massive movement globally. And proudly, I can say that FMB, sustainable tourism, um, and all of the relevant hospitality tourism sectors are booming based on the vision that the country has actually really put in place. It is so interesting to hear you say that because we just uh, spoke to Gerald Lawless, of course, the, the founding CEO of the Jumeirah Group. And he was describing how we took a, mem- a trip down memory lane with him as well. And he was describing how um, back when the Jumeirah Beach Hotel was being built, at the same time the Burj Al Arab was being built, at the same time Emirates Towers was being built. And I hadn't realised that, you know, that the country or, or His Highness Sheikh Mohammed didn't sort of wait around to see how Jumeirah Hotel, Beach Hotel would do financially. He just went straight in and built three of the biggest sort of top class hotels, you know, in the world now. But from, from the outside, absolutely, looks like just went in and, and did this. But there was a lot of planning. This didn't happen on the, on the back of a, a cigarette packet. This, there was a lot of planning. There was a lot of resources implemented. And I was actually working with uh, Gerard Lawless at the opening of Burj Al Arab. And I do recall Sheikh Mohammed Hizana saying, yeah, so one of the audience, actually, the uh, journalists put their hand up and said, how much was this uh, project sort of funding? How did how did this money come about? And the answer was, there was a moment of silence, I must admit. I, I, there's the, a moment so, of silence from me now. I'm a bit nervous even now. <laughs> the, the answer was, um, Eiffel Tower... Really, um, do you know how much that's cost? This is not about a hotel. This is about putting Dubai on the map. This is about putting Dubai on a stamp at the time. And, you know, honestly, it's done. It's achieved. And we keep on moving forward, progressing rapidly. And proudly, I can say, very few other countries around the globe are actually competing at the level that this country is evolving so rapidly, so progressively, and collaborating with... The world, the brands, and everybody is aspiring to be part of the success story.
Is there capacity for more, though? I mean, we've discussed in the past uh, the proliferation of restaurants uh, on the scene and the fact that it does seem to be, especially as we enter the new season now, I mean, uh, there are invitations left, right and centre coming through for new restaurants opening. You know, is there, do we need them? (laughs) Do we need more hotels? Do we need more restaurants? Uh, look, uh, uh, talking about correlation as well, I think what we should be looking at is as long as Emirates Airlines continues on excelling and delivering and making sure movements and logistics are moving well, as long as the headcount population keeps on growing, there's always opportunities. Is there an oversupply? Perhaps there is in certain pockets, but overall, an economy doesn't grow, or doesn't stop growing unless there is no growth. So what what I'm trying to tell you here is we need to grow. We need to keep adding, but we need to make sure the masses are also coming. And I think what the government has done recently as well with the introduction of various types of visas and the facilitation of, of paperwork, this is phenomenal because this is no longer about coming to the UAE or coming to Dubai for two years to work. This is about to coming here to reside to make this place home. Now, I want to talk to you about jobs numbers. There was a big report out this morning that the Business Breakfast talked about, about the increase in jobs uh, over the last three months. It was up a a considerable percentage. I can't remember what the percentage is. I failed slightly on that one. But it was up considerably over the just the previous three months. And of course, this was over the summer when normally recruitment goes slightly quiet. Have you been hiring staff? Have you been expanding in order to deal with this influx of tourism? Well, not just tourists, but influx of people who have been coming to live here as well. 26% 26% growth in, in, in the hotel occupancy means there is volume, means there is uh, a demand. And typically in summer, we, uh, we all stop, you know, we freeze the high, we wait for the season to come back, and then we recommence um, beginning of Q4. This year was not the case. This year we continued on recruiting, lower numbers, admittedly, but we did continue because there's a lot of new projects. And again, there's a lot of changes happening on the marketplace. And in order to stay competitive and move forward, we needed to make sure we continue on recruiting and recruiting wisely. Uh, again, back to the visa options, I think now with so many varieties, you, the ability to have part-timers and casuals and, th- and so forth makes it a lot more palatable for the businesses to actually be recruiting at a different speed, at different angles. Yeah, that is really interesting. Have those green visas helped you? Because I know in the past I've spoken to you about the, the difficulty in hiring seasonal staff, for example. Of course, look, they're coming in very handy. And I think what's what's really exciting now is the variety of visas, the options that people can come in and assist the businesses and the fact that a lot of people are moving here with their families, so yeah, they have um, young ones, 16 to 18 years of age. Previously, we weren't able to actually engage with them and, and get them to serve food, definitely not on the beverage side, but on the food side. But today we can and we are. And that's not only helping the industry, that's actually helping families to get their kids into uh, a mindset that is work, into a mindset that is earning a bit of money and creation, creation of value, understanding value. So it's beneficial on all fronts. Naeem, as always, fantastic to have you join us on the radio. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for taking us down memory lane uh, and looking into the future a bit as well. Those uh, those job numbers for you, the UAE saw a 9% increase over the summer in Q3. And that's 9% compared to Q2, which was already up. Uh, so great to hear about how uh, we really are seeing that like it's non-negotiable uh, growth in the tourism sector and, and the wider economy here in the UAE. Always very interesting.
interesting to delve into those numbers with Naima Dad, Chief Executive and Founder of Gates Hospitality. Thank you very much for your time. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the show. We are discussing the impact of tourism on the UAE on the programme today. Uh, That is off the back of several news headlines, uh, not least the fact uh, that the latest figures show that hotels in the UAE recorded a 24% annual increase in revenues in the first seven months of this year to 26 billion dirhams. Uh, Also, very nice to hear from Lisa, one of our listeners who's got in touch saying occupancy is north of 70% for the year. That is globally enviable. It means there is a ton of capacity and room for more hotels. We've had some great conversations uh, with Gerald Lawless, who I like to say uh, I describe as the godfather of tourism here in the UAE. He is, of course, the founding CEO of Jumeirah Group. We've also uh, spoken just now to Naeem Madad, who's the chief executive and founder of Gates Hospitality, um, taking a memory lane with both, uh, taking a, a trip down memory lane, I suppose, with both of them as to how tourism has developed here, but also looking at the the impact that tourism has on various bits of the economy. Obviously, Naeem was able to talk about food and beverage, the restaurant scene. I'm joined now on the line by someone who uh, is incredibly experienced uh, on the subject of retail. It is, of course, David McAdam, the CEO of the Middle East Council of Shopping Centres and Retailers, joining us on Teams. Now, David, thank you. Good to have you on the show as ever. Thanks, Georgia. Always a pleasure to be with you. And thanks for having me back. Yeah, I want to know how big an impact uh, tourism has on retailers. I want to know whether there's a sort of direct correlation. If you're seeing a 24% increase in hotel occupancy, you know, in, in the amount of money they're making in hotels, are you getting a direct uplift in the amount of shopping those people are doing? Well, the short answer is yes, and and it's a great news story for Dubai and for the uh, shopping center owners and for the retailers because um, really depending upon the, the the shopping center and the products that you're speaking of uh, and whether they're available globally or whether they're just available locally, say in the Dubai market, and then the pricing. It's very, very positive because, uh, as we all know, Dubai is one of the shopping capitals of the world and remains to be that way, which is, I think, a great uh, a great news story for Dubai. I have to admit, I'm always... I'm always quite surprised that Dubai is still seen as the sh- as the shopping capital of of the world because I whenever I think of Dubai I think of beach holidays resort holidays and I often don't imagine people leaving their resorts you know the flop and drop type holiday rather than people going out to to spend money in the malls but is is that not the case I mean obviously you'd know well, sure. I think the biggest thing that you walking through any shopping center, for example, Dubai Mall and Mall of the Emirates, let's just talk about those two. And then there's many others. Uh, the vast majority of the shoppers during the weekdays and probably between, say, noon and four in the afternoon are all tourists. And I think this is this is a very valuable part of the economy for Dubai. Um, these shoppers come in to to look around, and it's not just uh, uh, they stay in their hotel. They do come in. They want to see what's available. They know that Dubai has such a great reputation as being a mecca for shopping. So it's um, it's a great news story. And I think that in years gone by, and I think even going forward, we have found that 
the, um, the, the value that the tourism brings is up to 40% of the gross annual sales that the retailers enjoy are directly attributed, depending on the product, but are directly attributed to the tourists. Where are those shoppers coming from? Are they mostly regional or do you get people from all over the world coming here to, to buy stuff? Well, it's all over the world, first of all. But, uh, you know, there was a time regionally when many, many people would come as guests from, say, Saudi or from other places like uh, uh, even Kuwait before the retail scene got really established there. So Dubai was really ahead of everyone else in the GCC for providing this great retail environment. Um, now it's it's a global phenomenon. And I think that many, many people are very pleased to come to Dubai to to just explore and see what's new because many times you will get the product that's not available anywhere else, but it is available in Dubai. And Uh, that's, I think, a great testament. I have to say, we've been speaking to uh, Gerald Lawless a little earlier, of course, uh, the the, the founding CEO uh, of the Jumeirah Group. And and I was talking to him about competition, uh, specifically, you know, upcoming regional competition from countries like Saudi Arabia. I mean, I have a great friend who's opening lots of shops, um, designer stores in, in Qatar, for example. So I know that the, 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 the regional shopping landscape is developing apace. Do you think that that could lead to competition with the UAE? Sure, it does. It always leads to competition. And I think it's a healthy competition. Um, if you look at, I think Dubai, when you look at it on a global basis, um, I mean, I think there was a, uh, something that I was looking at. His Highness uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum was stating that uh, when he first started out on his transformation of Dubai, he thought that perhaps uh, Dubai should become a tourist destination and he would grow it. And in fact, it's now become one of the fourth largest um, tourist destinations globally. So I think Dubai has always been a little bit ahead of the rest of the GCC friends and neighbors and and, and competitors. They will now start to um, perhaps as Riyadh uh, grows and as uh, Qatar grows and, and other communities grow with their retail, it'll be more of a competition. However, I think that Dubai has that leading edge and it's just up to the retailers to make sure they maintain that leading edge. David McAdam, always fantastic to have you join us on the radio. Thank you so much for your time. CEO of the Middle East Council of Shopping Centres and Retailers. Obviously, a great sort of regional uh, outlook there, uh, not just uh, based here in the UAE. So, David, thank you very much indeed for your time. Turning our attention now to an intriguing international story, because a painting that was valued at only $15,000 two years ago is now expected to fetch up to $18 million at an auction after it was identified as a work of the Dutch master Rembrandt. Now, it's called The Adoration of the Kings. Christie's first attributed it two years ago to the circle of Rembrandt, which means that it had been maybe carried out by one of his students or maybe an artist that was close to the famous painter. 
But that has now changed, and with it, uh, to say the least, the price tag. Uh, joining us now to talk through how the provenance of a painting can be established, how it can change so quickly, is art historian Rose Balston, who is the founding director of Artscapes UK, who regularly, uh, she also regularly hosts art programmes for Sky and the BBC. Rose, thank you so much for joining me on the line. Really fab to have you with us. First up, can you describe this painting for me? Yes. Hi, Georgia. Thank you for having me. Um, It is a very beautiful painting. So as you said, it depicts the adoration of the kings, this moment in the Christian story when the three kings come to pay homage to Christ shortly after he was born. And it is a night scene and it takes place in this rather dilapidated stable where you can see the roof has fallen in and you can see the Star of David just through the roof sort of starring in, uh, shining into the stable. And it's very subtly painted. It's almost monochromatic in tone. So lots of kind of browns and murky yellows and black colours, um, but with these beautiful kind of white highlights flecking on the surface, which was so typical um, of Rembrandt. And you've got the main action in the lower half. You've got a throng of people who are crowding in to see Christ, who's sitting on his mother's lap and leaning towards the eldest king, who is kind of giving Christ the gift. And there's this very beautiful interaction between the two, the king and Christ. It's a very quiet moment when there's a lot of hubbub and and noise going on behind them. It's absolutely beautiful. So clearly a painting of some stature. How on earth was it attributed to someone other than Rembrandt and sold for only $15,000 only two years ago? So you say it's a painting of some stature. It certainly is, but it's important to note that it's an early Rembrandt. So it was painted when he was 22 years old before he'd moved to Amsterdam, which was in 1630 and was his kind of big debut. So we know his paintings from later on in his career very well indeed. And seeing some of these earlier pieces when he was really evolving his style, trying to work out you know, which direction he was going in. First of all, it's very interesting to look at these works, but there's not necessarily such a kind of determined style at this point when he was such um, a young artist. Uh, How it can be determined to be circle of one minute and then an actual Rembrandt the next is all down to, first of all, the provenance, second of all, human interpretation and having fresh eyes on the piece and third most importantly uh, scientific exploration and in today's world scientists are able to delve under the surface of paintings way more than they were ever able to in the past and they can get a much clearer idea of what has literally happened to the painting over time. Can experts disagree on that? We know would one group of experts say yes it's a Rembrandt it's worth 15 million dollars or 18 million dollars and then another group go no 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 it it was painted by one of his students uh for this particular work i don't think there has been much uh contesting i think people generally now understand this work to be by rembrandt including some of the most important rembrandt scholars but that's not to say that what you are suggesting hasn't happened in the past because it certainly has i mean I'm sure many of us will remember what happened in 2017 when the Salvatore Mundi was sold, that that Leonardo painting that was sold for $450 million when it was expected to go for $100 And that was highly contested. There were 
major debates going on across the art historical world about whether this was a true Leonardo or not. So yes, it certainly does happen. Do you think more paintings can be found of of this type? You know, it seems so odd hundreds of years later for them to sort of come out of the woodwork, so to speak. They certainly can be. I mean, the way in which paintings are, are lost, if you like, is largely down to the problem of time. This Rembrandt was painted in 1628, that's some 400 years ago. And in order to be able to determine the provenance of the piece, i.e. exactly what has happened to it from the moment it left the artist's studio through to today, you need a very accurate, detailed uh, series of records that tell us where the painting went. And so many things get in the way over 400 years, be it revolution or war, be it the painting going from one owner to the next. Some owners might not want to tell the public that they've got this work. Some might not let photographs get out of the image. The work could be stolen. The work could be forged. You know, there's so many things that get in the way of provenance. And once the provenance is lost, it becomes it becomes hard to keep track of what's happened to a painting. I've got about 30 seconds left with you. Why is it that Rembrandt's paintings are so valuable? You know, what is it, their importance, their historical importance? Um, well, um, in a nutshell, Rembrandt is one of the most important artists that the world has ever seen. And I think if I was just to say one reason why he is so important is because alongside Leonardo, he was really the first artist to truly express the essence of the human condition through his paintings. Amazing. You're very kind to keep to time. Thank you so much, Rose Ballston there, art historian, founding director of Artscapes UK. Thank you so much for joining us here on the line. And if you want to find out more about art history, Rose is currently hosting an online public series of talks entitled Influencers, Women Who Change the Art World. All you need to do is go to her website, Artscapes UK, for more information on the next talk, which will be released on Wednesday. Hello there. Welcome back to the agenda. Uh, You are listening to Georgia Tolley here and I'll be keeping you company for the next hour. And I'm going to I'm going to have to ask you to forgive me because this next story might leave you sort of feeling just a little bit itchy. It's a bit like whenever we talk about knits. Sorry. Um, But over the last week, uh, the world has watched in sort of genuine discomfort, I think. I had last week off and and I was spending a lot of time on Instagram looking, you know, doom scrolling. Um, And there has been a serious outbreak of bedbugs across Paris. Uh, And that outbreak has continued to escalate. It's gone from being something of a nuisance to a threat to next year's Olympic Games. Really? Do we think it's true? I I mean, maybe. But certainly over the weekend, there was videos of pets crawling all over seats on the city's trains. That went viral. And then this morning, pupils at a number of schools across the French capital were told to stay home as officials fight to bring the outbreak under control. But obviously, you know, we're a we're a travel destination here. People go to Paris all the time. In fact, my friend Tish was in Paris last week and, and I saw her this weekend and I'm going to be looking at her very differently over the next uh, couple of days, just in case. Um, because, you know, with dozens of flights between the UAE and Paris every single day, you know, should we be worried about the bugs jumping ship, you know, jumping aboard a jet maybe to come to Dubai? It's lovely and warm here, humid. I bet bed bugs like humid environments. 
to find out more about the risk that they may or may not pose to us and what we can do to keep our homes itch-free. I am delighted to say I'm joined now by Pallavi Singtani, who's Head of User Experience and Marketing for the Healthy Home UAE. Uh, Pallavi, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Lovely to have you with us. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm well. How are you doing? I'm very well indeed. Thank you. Feeling a little bit uncomfortable now because, of course, once you start talking about these things, you start to get the itch. Um, <laughs> let's start with, OK, let's start with, first of all, what causes outbreaks like this one? You know, just how common are infestations like the one Paris is facing at the moment? It's not very common, to be honest, because uh, the infestation is dependent on, you know, bread, bed bugs multiply very quickly. But if you don't control them, then it causes an infestation. Think of it as lice, right? If you don't get rid of the first few uh, nets in your head, it's just going to keep spreading and spreading. Um, so it's more, I think, about public health control uh, and down to an individual level. So it doesn't reach this point because individuals are carriers, right? You can carry bed bugs. And your question was, can it come on a jet? Yes, it can. (laughs) Sorry. I'm I'm sorry. I don't have better news for you, but they transfer in anything that is soft, you know, so mattresses, sofas, carpets, uh, chairs with upholstery. Clothes, luggage, bags, suitcases. I remember years ago we were told never to put your suitcase on a bed in New York, for example. Yes. Uh, And it's the same reason, is it? Exactly. So you can carry uh, not just bed bugs, but other pests across the board. I know you're feeling itchy, but I I just scratched my I have good news for you. We can help. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, um, uh, so... Uh, let's just reverse a bit because I'm getting emotionally strained by this and I need to rationalise this. What is it that bed bugs like? You know, what, what conditions, apart from soft environments, do they like? Do they enjoy humidity? Yes, so damp, humid environments are breeding grounds and uh, dark spaces because they like to hide. So the reason they take soft spaces is because they can hide in cracks and crevices, ah. right? And it's easy for them to get transferred. It because it's like a tiny black spot. You can't even notice it. Uh, but if it's on the wall, you might notice it, right? So That's tiny, why So it's smaller than a housefly? Yes. Oh, way smaller than a housefly. An average bed bug is like three to five millimeters. Those bugs that they showed on the trains in uh, the videos I've seen are way bigger. I don't think those are bad Seven bugs. Seven millimeters. Yeah. Seven. It's not. Oh, no, no. That's, yeah. that's a fair, fair size bug. Okay. Um, okay. So say. I'm sure that they haven't jumped on jets, but say they had jumped on jets because you've just been to Paris and or they're, they're festering in your, in your luggage and you've already unpacked your suitcase on your bed. So therefore they could be in your bed. What can you actually do about it? So there are multiple ways to make sure that you're controlling the spread of bed bugs. Uh, one is you wash and dry steam everything at very high heat. They die in Um, like 60 plus degrees of heat. So if you're washing your mattress covers, your pillowcases, um, and then you spray them, um, sanitize your luggage, disinfect your luggage. uh, And we're actually, and what we're offering is as professionals, we'll come do an inspection for you. So for your friend who just came back from Paris. Yeah, you're going to have to go visit her before I see her again. (laughs) (laughs) We we have great news uh, because the Healthy Home is now offering a bed bug free package, which is 
If you've returned from Paris and you show us your ticket, we come to your home, do a free mattress, deep vacuuming and sanitization, free luggage disinfection and an inspection for bed bugs. If you have them, we'll recommend a treatment plan for you or a prevention plan for you if you're OCD like I'm me. I'm so itchy now, yeah. Um, and I, we can do a, like a free uh, bed bug inspection for anybody, including you, to see, you know, have has this transferred. Uh, but we also do preventative plans to make sure that if there is any possibility of them coming in, we'll spray, we'll use the vacuum, we'll sort of disinfect and make sure that uh, we've given you a plan to ensure that you don't get bed bugs. Um, and a lot of people are going for this now, I'm right? I'm not surprised. I mean, from a commercial point of view, it's just brilliant for you guys. There's nothing, <laughs> no, nothing better than a, than a bed bug. You know, that was, that was COVID for us. It was just oh, like course. sanitization, disinfection. We yeah. were, you know, one of the DHA approved companies. We still are. So uh, it has public health concerns and people individually have become more aware yeah. of the impacts of their environment on their health and well-being? Uh, I think, yes, from a business perspective, that has helped us, but also from the awareness perspective of your environments impact your health. They absolutely do. I mean, can I ask whether before this Parisian outbreak, you know, uh, are bed bugs a common problem here? Do you see them here already or are they not sort of, or are you more sort of see lots of cockroaches and that type of thing? We see both, but not as many bed bugs as cockroaches. Like August, for example, was our highest month for best control services all time because a lot of really? cockroaches and flies and mosquitoes that have been going around because of the humidity. In, so in as the, the humidity increases, the number of insects increases. Is that what you found? Actually, there are also winter specific pests that come up. So, so every season has like a pest that could potentially mutilate and grow. Um, and that's why we do contracts, right? So we come to your house once every three months to check your house and spray your house and do pest control so that you don't, so you have that continuous protection and peace of mind that my house is safe and pest free. But uh, every season has some sort of pest that could spread. So I've noticed this season is cricket season. Um, yes. They look a bit like cockroaches, but they've got long, whiskery antennae and they make an absolute racket. I mean, they're asking to be killed, which I do, I'm yep. afraid. Um, but, they, but they make such a noise. And, and anyway, so, so crickets, you'd kill crickets, would you, as yeah. well for me? Yeah. yeah, that's brilliant. Um, it's been a great pleasure to have you in. Thank I, you I mean, so much. I, despite the fact that you've made me itchy. Um, but call, call, call us, uh, you yeah. know, just get in touch with us. 800 sanitized. Yeah, if, if you're feeling itchy. I, <laughs> if I mean, you're feeling you itchy, give, get it checked. We have just to, for your safety. <laughs> we have to allow the commercial opportunity. It is a proper news story. Uh, and if you have gone to Paris, you, you genuinely may... I have brought bed bugs back with you, uh, so it might be worth getting checked. Uh, Pallavi Singtani, a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you so much. Uh, Pallavi's Head of User Experience and Marketing for the Healthy Home UAE. Good to have you with us here on the agenda, Georgia Tolly, uh, keeping you company till one o'clock. Lots of messages coming through uh, on the subject of whether or not 
We are a nation of animal lovers. Yvonne, thank you very much for your message. You say, unfortunately, it's commonplace for unwanted pets to be dumped into communities where there are known to be rescuers. Every year this gets worse and the rescuers are at capacity and cannot keep this up with their own money. Uh, It also amazes me that pets can be microchipped, but that the municipality have no record of owners. Uh, This person says the rules may be there, but implementation is of the essence. And it's very challenging. And in my view of this anonymous person seems to be lacking. Uh, Rules without strict implementation is a waste. Meanwhile, Christine says, yes, we are a nation of animal lovers. When I came here over 40 years ago, the majority of people had cats living in their courtyards. And now look at the number of vets that have set up here. That, in my view, shows that people are looking after them. Please do keep your comments coming. We are asking whether or not we are a nation of animal lovers, of course, prompted by that very sad case of uh, nearly 100 animals being dumped well, or abandoned, depending on which word you want to use, um, in the desert near the Al-Fala residential area in Abu Dhabi. Very interested to hear your, uh, for you to join the conversation on that, 4001, or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 Turning our attention now to sport, though, uh, not least because I've got the fabulous Chris McCarty joining me on the line, and we have had a cornucopia of sporting activity over the weekend, have we not, Chris? We certainly have. Good morning to you, Georgia. Good morning to your listeners. And you're absolutely right from a weekend that promised much. I think it's fair to say it delivered an awful lot as well. Let's start with the Cricket World Cup, a record-breaking victory for South Africa and a not-too-bad start for India, we'd say, as well. Yeah, indeed. Let's start with South Africa. Let's doff our cap to those guys because 428 for five in their 50 overs. That a record score in men's ICC Cricket World Cup history. Georgia against Sri Lanka on Saturday. It was far too good. They would go on to run out 102 run victors in that match in their opener against Sri Lanka. Quick word to an Aidan Markram, the quickest ODI century in history. Just 49 balls is all it took for that man to hit his century. It was belligerent. It was brutal and it was a success for South Africa. A little bit different in how India got the job done against Australia yesterday. KL Rahul as well as Virat Kohli. Not the first time that those two fellas have stepped up to the plate. Australia skittle out for just 199. Uh, India knocking off their run chase and about 41.2 over. So it ended up being pretty comfortable. They were teetering uh, for two for the loss of three wickets, but... Virat Kohli came to the crease alongside KL Rahul and those two men eventually taking India to success. So much more to look forward to though today and the rest of the week in this Cricket World Cup. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. New Zealand against the Netherlands. That's the match today to look forward to a 12.30 start. You've got England-Bangladesh tomorrow. You've obviously got as well Pakistan taking on Sri Lanka. I guess the big one for the week though, eh, mark your cards for Thursday. It's down in Hyderabad. It is Australia smarting from that defeat yesterday to India taking on the big hitting South Africans so that should be a cracker that one scheduled for Thursday Football now uh, we had a potentially defining day in the Premier League title race uh, Arsenal finally ended their Man City what is hoodoo what's a hoodoo sorry you can a tell I'm reading from the script now 
No, so if you've got, if you have a hoodoo in sport, it means that you haven't beaten them for a while, Georgia. And Arsenal hadn't beaten Manchester City for nine on I think five plus years in the Premier League. But they got the job done. They won one nil yesterday. It was a pretty timid affair. I, I was expecting a lot more than what we actually got served. But it was Gabriel Martinelli late on in this one, eighty six minutes. I think it was on the clock. A deflected effort. Mikel Arteta taking on Pep Guardiola, the master against the apprentice. Mikel Arteta finally getting one over his former boss in the shape of Pep Guardiola. And yes, OK, we're only at the start of October, but for Arsenal to beat City, that could potentially be seismic. Spurs and Arsenal sit atop of the table, joint on 20 points from their opening eight games. Manchester City, the defending champions, two points further back. Still a long way to go, but but I do wonder what kind of confidence booster Arsenal will get from that victory at the Emirates Stadium yesterday. Do you know, my head is actually in football, very unusually, mainly because I've been watching the David Beckham documentary over the weekend. Oh, yes. I've got one more episode to go. You've got one more. Okay, I've finished it. Of course I have. I've finished that on Friday night. (laughs) Uh, It is, yeah, honestly, if I was critiquing it, I actually find it a little bit surface, if I'm honest, Georgia. I felt the the way I described it to a friend this morning, it's a little bit like a Wikipedia dump. There isn't too much kind of revelatory that I'm getting from it, but I can see why so many people are infused by it. Of course, Bram Beckham, David Beckham, the celebrity footballer that he was and I guess still is in a lot of respects. Your thoughts on it? Are you enjoying it? I I mean, I'm loving it. It's very saccharine. There's a lot. I know about him yeah. <laughs> that that isn't in it, <laughs> so no. uh, which is interesting. Um, maybe not on the football side of things, but yeah, I mean, it's it, I, I sort of forgot how handsome he was, if I was honest, <laughs> when he was younger. I mean, you can understand why he was such a hit. Uh, he's a he was a beautiful young man. Um, that that's that's my main takeaway. Uh, quite good at football as well, apparently. Yeah, yeah he was handy. He was handy at football. <laughs> I, I actually think he's got better with age. David Beckham and all ah. the kids. Yeah, I think he is improving like a fine grape. <laughs> As all of the men are in this radio station, I have to say, all the I'm over forty-year-old men in this station, improving with with age and fatherhood. Uh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm going to skip over the fact that obviously Red Bull's Max Verstappen managed to win the drivers' championship yet again. Sorry to skip over it, but I've only got a minute with you, and I think we should talk about the Rugby World Cup because the pool stages are now done, aren't they? Yeah, they are quarter-final action for us next weekend. You've got Wales, Argentina. That's then followed by Ireland taking on New Zealand on the Sundays in England, Fiji before. We see the host, France, take on the defending champion, South Africa. In terms of the big story this weekend, there's only one, isn't there? Ireland thrashing Scotland. My beloved Scotland, not good enough on Saturday night. Ireland had the bonus point in the bag by half-time. Four tries run in in that opening brutal 40 minutes for Scotland and Ireland underlining once again why I think they are still the team to beat in this Rugby World Cup. Victories for England, victory two, big result last night, Portugal beating Fiji, but the pool stages are done. We're into the business end of this Rugby World Cup and we've got next weekend to look forward to. Should be a cracker. Fantastic. As always, Chris McCarty, great to have you join us on the radio on the agenda this morning. Uh, Of course, he's head of sports for ARN, but he's also the co-host of Offscript, which is your drive time show on air uh, this afternoon from 5pm all the way through until 8. 
Is it? Yes. Oops, you're on late. Yeah, it's 8 p.m., yes. three hours. My goodness me. Well, looking forward to hearing Chris later on this afternoon with the team Ronal at Ronal. That's how you combine Robbie and Sonal into one word when you're running out of time. Uh, they'll both be on as well. Uh, looking forward to it later on. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10 a.m. till 1 p.m.